Today's episode is sponsored by Kind Bars, and if you haven't tried one yet, I highly recommend them. Kind makes delicious, healthy snacks using whole ingredients that you can actually recognize and pronounce, which is always a plus. They have a wide variety of flavors. My favorite is just the dark chocolate and peanut butter. I'm, I'm sort of a purist, but I haven't made my way through their whole lineup yet. But you can find your favorite flavor when you take advantage of this special offer to get 10 different Kind Bars for free after just paying for shipping. To get your variety pack, go to kindsnacks.com best for more details. One more time, to learn more and to get your free sample box, go to kindsnacks.com best. And now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, Ring of Fire Radio, Ideas from the CBC, The Bradcast, The David Packman Show, The Dig, and Intercepted. Quote, I have noticed that so many people like him are all alone and unknown, yet when they spill a little blood, the whole world knows who they are. A man who was known by no one is now known by everyone. His face splashed across every screen, his name across the lips of every person on the planet, all in the course of one day. Seems the more people you kill, the more you're in the limelight. Close quote. Those words are from a 2015 blog post of a young man named Chris Harper Mercer, describing a man named Vester Flanagan, who killed a reporter and photographer at a Virginia TV station on air days previously, before shooting himself. Harper Mercer went on to shoot nine people to death at his community college in Oregon before shooting himself. Social scientists have long said of events like mass shootings that they are contagious and that media serve as carriers. Forensic psychologist Park Dietz told The Village Voice in 1999 that suicide, product tampering, and mass murder lent themselves to imitation, and the degree of imitation is connected to sustained and sensationalized media coverage. After the Sandy Hook school murders, sociologist Zeynep Tufeci offered some tentative media guidelines, noting that research finds, quote, establishing a path of action, a complete narrative in which you can visualize your steps and their effects is important to enabling follow through, close quote. Tufeci suggested that law enforcement should not release details of the methods and manner of the killings, and those who learn those details should not share them. In other words, no immediate stories about which guns exactly or how much RoboCop gear were used. And she said, quote, The killer should not be profiled extensively, at least not at first. We do not need to know which exact video games they played, what they wore, or what their favorite bands were, close quote. Which leads us, of course, to CNN's slow pans over the arsenal of the man who killed 59 people in Las Vegas October 1st, and the Washington Post headline about how the killer, quote, enjoyed gambling, country music, lived quiet life, close quote. The fact that the paper later changed the headline doesn't change the mindset that produced it, which is that when killers are white, they are first and foremost human beings whose violent acts are out of keeping bizarre. Above all, no reason to look askance at those who happen to share their ethnicity or religion. There is naturally a need for reporting. Among other things, media could explore, as did the nation's George Zornick back in July, how the NRA has gone from a calm advocate for hunters to a primal outlet for hard-right paranoia. 
NRA head Wayne LaPierre, Zornick notes, quote, understands the gun rights movement as a culture war first and a battle over gun laws second, close quote. At the group's annual meeting, LaPierre declared, quote, it's up to us to speak up against the three most dangerous voices in America, academic elites, political elites, and media elites. These are America's greatest domestic threats, close quote. And, as the historian Zornick cites, Pamela Hogg has pointed out, the country has not always been that gun-happy. In the book The Gunning of America, Hogg writes, quote, The gun culture that exists today in America developed out of an unexceptional, perpetual quest for new and larger markets that had exceptional social consequences. The tragedy of American gun violence emerged from the banality of the American gun business, close quote. Exploring such issues thoughtfully is not as easy as replaying footage of people screaming and running, but it's more likely to move us forward. Just the sheer horror of 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 what happened in Las Vegas at the beginning of this week, and the I don't know, the the just sort of the the disturbing sense that nothing's going to happen. I mean, the members of the Republican Party sort of perform this sort of kabuki theater, this kabuki dance where they basically said, well, now's not the time to politicize this. Now's not the time to talk about it because they know uh, it's a mildly uncomfortable topic for them to talk about. And in a week, uh, because, as you mentioned, if you want to contemplate three uh, shootings a day, or I should say three people shot in an event, uh, we have one every day. For the last 275 days, I think there's been about 275 events, something to that effect, mass shootings. Um, even uh, by the time uh, uh, Monday morning rolled around um, and th- this had happened at uh, 1 p.m. on the East Coast, at 1 a.m. East Coast time in uh, Las Vegas, uh, 30 minutes later, there was a three-person shooting in uh, in in Kansas. Um, and so you, you can't keep up with these things. Um, but you know, the real issue, it seems to me, and people talk about, I want to get your take on this. People talk about the money that the NRA gives, but really, um, I mean, that's important. But what we also see is that they have a, a stranglehold on Republican voters. Like the Republican party has, People talk about identity politics on the left. The identity politics uh, for the Republican Party are almost the the full breadth of politics that exists. Right. I mean, we've seen this with Donald Trump. It doesn't matter what his policy is. A lot of these people will follow him. Um, Barack Obama took some grief for saying, you know, they clutch their guns and their God uh, as as a way of turning away from everything. And in many respects, I mean, that's what we're seeing. And, and the NRA knows this, right? I mean, because they're doing like, even if you look at their ad campaigns, they're all cultural signifiers. They have nothing really to do with any type of policy. 
Oh, that's absolutely correct. And and by the way, the NRA is one of the the, the organizations, the the quote special interests uh, that pioneered this particular mode. Uh, they have over the course. I mean, it should go back a little bit. You know, it was night. The NRA used to be a sportsman's you know organization, gun safety. Uh, it really wasn't any kind of a particularly a political lobby. This is Wayne LaPierre. He's the guy who created this juggernaut. And he came in in 1993, and he came in kind of while the zeitgeist was was radicalizing the Republican Party anyway. And at the time, there were quite a few Democrats that were still NRA members and who ran as, you know, gun rights advocates. Um, And it should be said that, you know, at that point, that, that a, quote, individual right to bear arms had not been fully established by the Supreme Court. It had never been. It wasn't actually upheld until 2008. So that's a very recent um, you know, sort of official designation of it as an unfettered individual right. That had never been true before. And, uh, you know, when LaPierre came in in 1993 on the heels of that, you know, that new radicalization with Newt Gingrich and Tom DeLay and that whole crowd. And in 1994, the Democrats managed to pass what they called the assault weapons ban. And that galvanized the 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 far right gun movement and you know it kind of piggybacked on a lot of anti government stuff that was going on the militia movement ruby ridge you know waco and all of that stuff and the nra was right in there and one of the things they did and lapierre is really a brilliant politician i don't think he gets quite enough credit for his participation in the uh, ascension of the right wing in the last 25 years um, he understood that this was all about uh, white identity culture, and he got it from the very beginning. And he has been making those kinds of connections between the right, the enemy. In his very first speech before the NRA in 1993 declared that the greatest enemy of all Americans was the, was the news media. He was way ahead of Donald Trump in that one. Um, and in fact, in a lot of ways, LaPierre invented Trumpism. I mean, this kind of, you know, violent, uh, you know, very, um, you know, very slightly disguised racism, vigilantism, anti-government, anti-left. I mean, all of this has been building and has been part of the NRA, and it kind of waxes and wanes. When there's a Democrat in the in the office, it's always about, you know, anti-government, jackbooted thugs going after after your guns, when a Republican is in office, they tend to focus more on the left and how, you know, these people are violent and they are especially doing that right now. I mean, the NRA is after, quote, Antifa. Uh, That is the new enemy of the people. Um, So he is very, very, very skilled at at writing the zeitgeist uh, on the right. And he has become, I think the NRA and the, the Republican Party are now interchangeable. I think and, they actually are the same thing. And you can track this. I mean, remember Poppy Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush quit the NRA because of Wayne LaPierre. Yep. And now the idea that anybody would even chastise Wayne LaPierre uh, in the Republican Party is impossible to even conceive of um and it just gives you a sense of of just how how melded they have become and their uh, you know it, it is the, this cultural outreach and their ability to move votes in very yep. deeply passionate votes of people who i think you know don't even care about gun ownership as much as they don't as much as they have been convinced 
as much as this has become a cultural signifier that, um, you know, we are manning the ramparts against the uh, the Muslims and the gays and the feminists and the uh, yep. the liberals and uh, the the PCers or whatever it is, it is. Uh, it's a real it's a real problem. And, um, you know, we're not going to get any type of any type of even, you know, close to what we need in terms of uh, safe gun regulations uh, while this dynamic is in play. I like guns. That's a difficult admission, as if confessing to some kind of perversion, though it ought not to be. A.J. Somerset is a Canadian journalist and former Army reservist. He's also an avid hunter and gun collector. People like all kinds of things. Cars, sailboats, acoustic guitars. And nobody has to justify liking these things, as I am continually asked to justify liking guns. My reason is simple. Shooting is fun. A.J. Somerset's book is called Arms, the Culture and Credo of the Gun. People are likely to think you're weird for liking guns, which is why it's a difficult admission. In their eyes, you become one of those gun nuts. And although I like guns, I do not like gun nuts. Later in the conversation, we'll be joined by two other thinkers who will help expand and deepen the discussion. But first, my interview with A.J. Somerset. You say in, in the book, and I quote, I do not like gun nuts. When did that realization actually first hit you? Well, this was when I first returned to shooting. Uh, I guess it was five years ago. Um, and I just noticed this utterly self-centered attitude that a lot of people had, that I should be allowed to do anything I want, own any gun I want, and if other people get killed by other people, well, that's other people's problem, which I think is insane. Now, when did you first shoot a gun then? I think I was uh, 12 years old. I was in Boy Scouts at the time, 22 rifle. As part of your Boy Scout experience, you were shooting guns? or uh, Yes, and we were shooting in the basement of a high school where there was a rifle range. Where was this? In London, Ontario. There was uh, Sir Frederick... Banting uh, Secondary School had, at that time, a rifle range in the basement. And it's a twenty-two caliber rifle, so there's not a lot of recoil or anything like that. It's uh, pretty innocuous. It was fun. Okay, then, then years later, how many years later before you, you picked up a gun and shot it again? Well, I was, uh, when I was in the military, um, I had, you know, both the stuff I had to shoot as part of my job. In fact, you tell an, an, an anecdote, really, at the beginning of the book about your training in military shooting. You were pretty good. I mean, you were shockingly good. Well, I was surprisingly good that one time. <laughs> um, I shot what what that, happened? Uh, well, I think that uh, that one time, the first group I ever shot in the Army was fantastic. And after that, my shooting with the FN uh, deteriorated. Your shooting rapidly. was so fantastic. You hit the same tiny little spot in a target at, what, 100 yards? Or how, what was it the was distance? 100 yards, and the first two rounds were maybe separated by half an inch. 
and then the other one was just a couple inches away. So that was pretty good for the first time with the FN. Okay, there, there, obviously, there was some sort of tipping point where you came to look at guns in a different way, and I understand that Justin Bork might have had something to do with that. Well, uh, Justin Bork would have been after the tipping point. I think the, you know, when I was still in the military, I suppose I probably would have been prone to rather gun nut views. Uh, it never really sort of came up. Um, but then I left and, and I spent about 15 years not shooting. Um, and I was, you know, still exposed to people who hunted and stuff like that because I was writing for outdoor magazines. But it just seems self-evident to me that, uh, we're in a democracy, and that means that you have to strike a balance. Some people don't like something. Some people do like something. You have to come to a consensus. You can't just throw your blinkers on and say, I'm going to do my thing, and nobody should be allowed to stop me. Tonight, a manhunt is underway in Moncton for a man armed with guns. It's been perhaps the darkest day in the history of the RCMP in New Brunswick. <laughs> oh, my God. An armed suspect is still on the loose in Moncton. Three RCMP officers are dead, two more are wounded. I think that Justin Bork, uh, not only for me, but for Canadians at large, helped to uh, show us just how nuts the uh, gun lobby has become in this country. Uh, because the National Firearms Association, while Bork was still strolling through the streets, uh, police hadn't caught him yet, they were already issuing a press release that said, Justin Bork has just demonstrated gun control doesn't work, therefore we shouldn't have it. Which, you know, I think everybody who was sane in Canada immediately realized that that is, or recognized that that is just nuts. Um, but that's what the National Firearms Association came out and said. So I think it, it really illustrated just how different the thinking is. And that's a specific incident, but this is a book. You've written a complete book about the nuttiness of gun culture. How would you characterize it more broadly? Uh, more broadly, it's uh, almost an aggressively childish worldview in which uh, the only person that matters is me and what I want to do. So if uh, what I want to do causes anybody any harm, or me, my being allowed to do what I want to do causes anybody any harm, that's not my problem. Um, I'm not the one doing the harm, therefore I should be allowed to continue doing what I'm doing. And then you punish people who are, you know, breaking the laws. But in the real world, people realize that if I'm allowed to buy a gun, then the other guy's allowed to buy a gun without any regulations. So uh, you then have no control over anything. And if if the gun lobby had its way, and in Canada, we did away with the Firearms Act, we did away with uh, all registration, we did away with all forms of licensing, and uh, we said you can buy anything. Well, then, you know, anybody who wants to, including people with violent criminal records, can now buy anything. So I, I don't even understand what kind of worldview can come up with that except to say that it's aggressively childish. Beecham, 
over at Vox.com today. Uh, well, he has been reporting on the American gun violence epidemic for a long time. And uh, today, after the uh, news of the massacre began to come clear, he unleashed and uh, sort of updated a series of his stories that seem tremendously pertinent today. Again, facts, just facts, putting your partisan politics aside, just facts. Sunday's shooting in Las Vegas uh, he writes, like so many mass murders before it, seem likely to raise a debate we've had many times before. Why does the U.S. have such a high rate of gun murders, which is by far the highest in the developed world? It is not even close. Um, I think the, the the closest number of homicides per firearm per one million people would be in Switzerland, where they have 7.7 uh, homicides per per 1 million people. We have 29.7, almost 30. No uh, developed country is even close to that, to that number. Uh, That's 30 per 1 million people. So that's an apples to apples comparison. So why is this? Uh, Zach Beecham asks, is it uh, because Americans are just more prone to this type of violent crime? Is it income equality? Is it cultural difference? Uh, He points to a 1997 landmark study which actually tried to answer that question. Why are there so so many uh, murders in the U.S.? And uh, scholars say that this study from 1997 still holds up and that uh, finds that America does not have a significantly higher rate of crime compared to similar countries, but that the crime itself is much more likely to be lethal. American criminals kill just just kill more people than their counterparts do in other developed countries. And it appears that it the difference for that, the explanation for that is, yes, guns. Uh, there was a 1999 book about this study by Berkeley's uh, Franklin Zimring and Gordon Hawkins. It's called Crime is Not the Problem. They set out to examine what was at the time the uh, the conventional wisdom that America had a uniquely terrible crime problem without any parallel in any other developed democracies. But they found pretty defini- definitively, he says, That the conventional wisdom is actually wrong, that rates of common property crimes in the U.S., for example, are comparable to those reported in many other Western industrial nations. But the rates of lethal violence in the U.S. are much higher. In other words, violence, particularly lethal violence, is a separate issue from the crime rate itself. Other countries have... Uh, similar uh, numbers of, you know, property crime, uh, crime rates, but only in the U.S. do people die at the rate that they do, thanks to guns, as they uh, go on to find out. In this uh, case, they looked at 20 developed countries and their overall crime rates and their rates of violent death. They found virtually no connection between the crime rate and the rate of violent death. Uh, indicating that the violent uh, death was not a matter of overall crime levels, as used to be the case. Oh, well, America is just we're just more violent here in the U.S. Uh, than we, I mean, we just have a higher crime rate here in the U.S. And the truth is that we don't. We have comparable rates, comparable of crime, crime rates of yeah. different kinds of crime, even. 
You know, and and, and yet the difference is the availability of guns appears to be the case. Uh, you know, none of this is conclusive. It's not as easy as doing a study of a of a drug, for example, where one group will take the drug and the other group will not. You can compare the results. You know, here you've got uh, a lot of different uh, crime rates, a lot of different uh, reasons, a lot of different laws. So it's not a perfect apple to a- apples to apples uh, comparison when it comes to these things. But if you look at the crime rate on that, you can get pretty empirical as far as how many people die and how many, uh, you know, reported crimes are there. The lowest death rate country is England. It has a crime rate just over the average crime rate comparing these uh, 20 developed countries. The next lowest violence rate is Japan, which has the lowest crime rate. The third lowest death rate is the Netherlands, but uh, they are in the highest crime rate group. So crime rate does not equate to uh, violent death rate. If there's a high uh, crime rate in a country that doesn't have a lot of weapons, that has strict gun safety laws, then the number of deaths will be much lower, according to this uh, this data set. Uh, Zimmering, Zimmering and Hawking's write that uh, this data set provides a multinational example of the central point that lethal violence is the crucial problem in the U.S. It shows that the U.S. clustered with other industrial nations in crime rate, um, but it is very you know close to these other countries. But when it comes to violent death, we are head and shoulders above the rest. We're number one. So why does this happen, uh, Beecham asked? Well, it's not why you might think. American violent cr- criminals are just more likely uh, t- to kill people. That's not why. Only a minority, for example, of L.A. homicides grow out of criminal encounters like robbery and rape. They find uh, that uh, even if it could be shown that American robbery and rape rates are across the board higher than those in similar countries, which does not appear to be true, that it still would not explain why America has so many more homicides than those other countries. Um, The data is revealing a far greater proportion of L.A. homicides grow out of arguments and other social encounters between acquaintances than from robbery or rape. And the mere presence of firearms during those arguments or other social encounters, according to this study, uh, makes what would otherwise be a tense situation turn deadly. When gang members argue with other gang members or a robber sticks up a liquor store, there's always a risk that the situation can escalate to some kind of violence, he says. But when people have a handheld tool that is specifically engineered for killing efficiently, escalation to murder becomes much, much more likely. And I feel sort of stupid pointing this stuff out that seems, at least to my brain, extraordinarily obvious. But apparently we need to point it out because there is so much nonsense and propaganda uh, that is not based on the hard, confirmable data like some of these numbers uh, floating out there. And plus the fact that we just don't have this conversation. So I guess it's incumbent upon me to, to point out what seems to be the obvious at some point.
Today's classic interview is really straightforward in terms of what I discussed with Jonathan Metzl about three years ago, three and a half years ago. Mental health gun databases. Obvious, right? You create a database. It helps people uh, not get guns. It helps to prevent people who shouldn't have guns from getting them. However, one lesser known aspect of those mental health databases uh, are that they are incredibly racially tinged. And Jonathan Metzl joined me in February of 2013 to talk about that. Let's go back to that important topic. Joining me is Jonathan Metzl. He's the director of Vanderbilt Center for Medicine, Health and Society. His last book, The Protest Psychosis, deals with how schizophrenia has become a disease associated with and overdiagnosed with black men. I want to talk about this, Jonathan, first kind of specifically uh, uh, your findings and then later talk a little bit about the gun debate that's going on and how this may tie into the so-called mental health databases. So first, let's talk about the overdiagnosis part. T tell us about your research there. Absolutely. So I, it, it's interesting for me that actually the two topics that you just mentioned overlap a great deal. Uh, the, the kind of central narrative of the book and of the research that I've been doing since the book looks at a, 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 an, an interesting and troubling cultural phenomenon, which is the overdiagnosis of schizophrenia in African-American men, which really started, according to data, in about the 1960s. It's, it, it was interesting for me to find in my research that prior to the 1960s, we thought of schizophrenia as an illness that was most often a associated with really docile white women. Mm. So in the 30s, 40s, and 50s in the United States, you would see movies and films and even hospital asylum wards where schizophrenia was a diagnosis that was applied to white housewives or women who were kind of troubled or in need of psychoanalysis or psychotherapy. Is this an, extension, I, is this an extension of those ads that sometimes float around about how to deal with nervous women and hysteria and that type of thing? That was totally part of that story. So at the time, people thought that schizophrenia was almost a neurotic or personality condition. There was a famous movie in 1948 called The Snake Pit with Olivia de Havilland, and it told a story of a kind of neurotic white woman who, who went crazy when she got married. And so there was this whole kind of cultural aura around the culture of psychoanalysis at the time. They kind of sent the message, not only that schizophrenia was an illness of white women, but also that schizophrenia was an illness of docility. And so a lot of times you would see these women as being kind of troubled or, as you mentioned, neurotic, but nobody was really afraid of them. There was no cultural discussion that, oh, people with mental illness might be violent or hostile or dangerous. Hmm. And what I found was that all of a sudden in the 1960s, quite literally in a five or 10 year period, you see that all of a sudden kind of out of nowhere, this this real fear of mental illness and part of what's happening is that there's a different association with schizophrenia in which all of a sudden people started associating schizophrenia not only with angry black men but also with violence at that time and so all of a sudden in the 1960s and 1970s you see a host of cultural representations that basically talk about angry black killers that are on the loose or schizophrenic black men that want guns their fbi most wanted lists that all of a sudden start showing angry black men with schizophrenia and so really what you see in this very brief period is this all of a sudden this association a kind of change in the assumptions about the race and the gender of schizophrenia that really extend into the present day and so one thing that i make up i've been doing a fair amount of kind of conversations about the about the gun violence issue and one thing i point out is that we didn't always think about people with mental 
violence in general and people with schizophrenia in particular as being violent, then in a way, all these transformations happened in the 1970s and they were linked to, to transformations race as well. So this is interesting when we talk more specifically about the gun debate that's going on now, because I had a conservative on the show a couple of weeks ago, and we were trying to kind of have some kind of consensus about what are effective ways of reducing gun violence. And then he was talking about, well, we need to really keep guns out of the hands of people who are most likely to commit violence with them. And he used a lot of what I consider to be kind of racially coded terms, including uh, the children of single parents, urban areas and, uh, you know, drug uh, related gun homicides and all these things which speak very clearly to me with with racial connections and it's interesting that even the the idea of a mental health database could be racially coded if you think that it's going to be overly it, it's going to over represent misdiagnosed schizophrenia in african americans am i off on this now, absolutely you know you're absolutely right about that i would i would make two two separate points about that uh, and one let me just say that uh, before i even make any points about it let me say that i i I don't think I, I can't be entirely critical of this association between mental illness and, and violence, because when we see these horrific crimes, like what happened in Newtown or in Colorado or, you know, the string of horrific crimes that we've seen in Arizona, um, there is, I think, a, a justifiable human impulse to say that what's happening now is not sane, that in a way a, a normal person will be doing this. And we struggle for words to understand what had happened. And certainly also in the incidents of a lot of these mass shooters, there are different kinds of, of mental illness histories. And so in that sense, I, I don't think that the, the rush to assume that there's a mental illness connection is entirely uh, something that's entirely problematic because it helps us make sense of, of what's happening here. At the same time, it, it's troubling for a couple of reasons. And one is that as an aggregate group, uh, I think that the data on uh, gun violence is really uh, pretty unconvincing in terms of who's committing who's committing the crimes. And so even leaving the race issue aside, people with mental illness are far more likely to be the victims of violence rather than the perpetrators of violence. Uh, and this association that we need to fear the mentally ill is really kind of an inversion of what's happening in the real world in which people with mental illness in, in – Violence in general and also gun violence are far more likely to be attacked uh, because of, you know, a variety of reasons. And so one is that we're kind of promoting the stereotype of the violent, mentally ill person when really reality does not does not bear that out at all. And the second point, as you mentioned, is that there is a racial component to this. And I say that because in the research I've done, I've looked at the 60s and 70s. And there was a different debate about guns at that time. There, all of a sudden in the 60s and 70s, people like Huey Newton and people in the Black Panthers and Malcolm X and other people, Robert Williams, a, a NAACP leader in the South, were arguing that African Americans needed to arm themselves in order to protect themselves against racist aggression. And so there were movements, you know, this, you know, violence is as natural as cherry pie and movements to ar arm black people. And all of a sudden, white society started saying, no, that's mental illness, that we, that we don't want black people to, to get arms. And what they did was they passed the Voting Rights Act of 1968, I mean, excuse me, the Gun Control Act of 1968. Uh, and so in a way, at that moment, there was this kind of fear, this racialized fear that 
that um, that tied into the gun debate at, at the time, and it led to a kind of association between guns and really black protests. Well, the double carried- standard and the hypocrisy is also fascinating because back then it was mental illness to think that you needed guns to protect yourself from racism. At the same time, now we have this inc- entire group of individuals saying they need guns to protect themselves, in many cases from the possibility of a tyrannical government or of any other number of things. But nobody's bringing up that that idea is, is mental illness. That's never suggested now. No, and, and you made my point exactly. I mean, I, I think that's exactly the point, that what we see in the 60s and 70s is that when people like Huey Newton were saying we need guns, society was very comfortable at pathologizing what it called black culture. Uh, in the present day, when we have shooters who are very often white, troubled white males, it's never, oh, we need to blame white culture for that crime. It's always, you know, this is a lone troubled individual. And the mental illness part plays right into it. We say, oh, it's it's just this one person. It's not a cultural debate. And so really just the fact that these shooters are white and we have a very different cultural response, I think is part of, of the kind of, as you say, very strong double standard that we have here. Um, a second point that I would make is that if you look at the, you know, recent Pew research, African Americans are far more likely to support gun control, it's upwards of 70%, far more likely than, than white Americans to support gun control. Uh, and so in a way, a lot of this NRA kind of talk is really being driven. I mean, it's, it's very hypocritical to say that it's coming from, you know, inner cities and stuff like that, when people in the inner cities want gun control more than anybody, I think. As always, I want to remind you that this show runs on recurring donations from listeners just like you. Listeners like the now-famous member Alan from Connecticut and the not-yet-famous Steve M., who just got his personalized membership feed to the show working and commented on how easy it turned out to be. Both Alan and Steve went above and beyond signing up at the professional protester level, so huge thanks to them, but of course thanks to all of the members and donors who help keep the show going. And speaking of the way that Steve got his membership feed set up so easily, I want to tell you a little bit more about that whole system. There's been a member's feed for a long time now. That's not new. Uh, But the technology that runs it is incredibly antiquated, the old system. And I've been using the same thing for eight years, and it's never been updated. So just try to remember what the internet was like in 2009, and you'll understand why the most frequent question I get from members is about why their feed stopped working. This is the biggest reason among many that I made the jump to Patreon. Now when you sign up, you get instant access to your very own modern, personalized feed from Patreon, where every regular episode and every bonus episode is delivered. It works just like any podcast feed on any podcast listening app. Uh, You you can use it on your computer, any MP3 player, smartphone, whatever. If you can subscribe to a podcast, you can subscribe to this members-only podcast, and no passwords required. Much simpler. And I haven't gotten any reports of anyone's feed not working, but if that were to happen, there's now an entire staff of people whose job it is to make sure it gets back up and running for you. Now, the other day, I got an email from a member requesting exactly this kind of premium feed for members, and I had to tell them, buddy, I'm way ahead of you. (laughs) That which you seek is already in place. Um, But that email 
sort of let me know that I obviously hadn't done a good enough job of explaining what's in store for members when they sign up. So those are the basics, which you've just heard. Uh, just be sure to read the notices you receive after signing up on Patreon to get all of the details on subscribing to your personal members feed and find out, as Steve will attest, just how easy it is. So as always, find us on Patreon or go to the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Thanks in advance for your support. The massacre in Las Vegas has once again put the long-simmering debate over gun control back on boil. The shooter had 23 firearms in his hotel room, including, according to the Washington Post, at least a dozen semi-automatic rifles legally modified to fire like automatic weapons. The debate follows a well-worn and familiar path. Liberals cry out for more gun control, and members of the NRA-tethered Republican Party decry the politicization of tragedy, as if the question of how someone gets their hands on a dozen essentially automatic rifles isn't inherently a political one. But what this debate obscures is that we already have a form of gun control in the United States. The problem is that it's a form of gun control that does little to nothing to keep us safe and that mostly results in locking up huge numbers of poor black men. This, to be clear, is not an argument against gun control. I'm not a fan at all of either the case made by the NRA on the right or the case made by some on the radical left that says we need firearms to resist the government. Rather, my point is that we currently have a two-tiered right to bear arms in this country that has led the right to bear any and every arm being sacrosanct for white Americans while being relentlessly criminalized for many black Americans. I firmly believe that we must disarm all of American society including, ultimately, the police. What the current setup does is it permits the mass production and distribution of guns into a segregated two-tier system of gun rights. The result is that we have horrible shootings, whether on the south side of Chicago or from the broken window of a Las Vegas hotel, alongside mass incarceration of black men for carrying guns the mere possession of guns. In short, our gun control status quo is the worst setup imaginable. Reporters, unfortunately, almost never talk about this, and I find it incredibly frustrating, as you can probably tell. For many journalists, it's always a question of there being just two positions on guns or really on anything, one a liberal position and the other a conservative position. As a result, a real left position is often rendered invisible. That's why so many political reporters, for example, had such a hard time making sense of Bernie Sanders initially. When it comes to guns, I think the left should say this. We want a society without readily available weapons of war on the streets and a society without mass incarceration. It seems reasonable enough to me. Not that it'll be easy to make this happen, either of them, but it seems like a reasonable enough vision and statement of principles 
to me. Anyhow, my guest for this episode is Ben Levin, a professor of law at the University of Colorado Law School, who teaches and writes about criminal law and procedure. Before entering academia, he practiced civil rights law, focusing on police and prosecutorial misconduct, and served as a law clerk to two federal judges. More to the point, his 2016 article, Guns and Drugs, in the Fordham Law Review, really helped shape my thinking on guns and mass incarceration. Ben Levin, welcome to The Dig. Thanks, Ben. Pleasure to be here. The the case that you make in your article from last year, Guns and Drugs, and that you started to lay out there is that a lot of the same problems that critics point out about the war on drugs map pretty well on to the war on guns, but the debate is very different. In fact, the way the entire debate is structured as just kind of NRA libertarian right versus liberal pro-gun control really seems to obscure how the policing and prosecution of guns has created this sort of two-tiered right to bear arms in this country and as a result become really one of the key components among many of of the carceral state. Yeah, so I think one thing that's 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 interesting and that that actually concerns me is I think in some ways there's a there's a dangerous preoccupation with the second amendment in these conversations, right? So it makes sense that maybe from a, a um, a gun rights perspective or, or an anti-gun control perspective, the Second Amendment and the language of the Second Amendment um, are very important and very helpful. And certainly given um, what the Supreme Court did in Heller um, and in McDonald, the two big cases where um, where the court defined the Second Amendment um, as as guaranteeing an individual right to bear arms, um, those are, you know, that, that becomes very important to, to folks who, who care deeply about, um, about, uh, their right to, um, to have guns. I think from, from a gun control perspective and for, um, for liberals, for folks on the left, for folks on the right who may, um, who may be kind of more skeptical to, to some of those positions. I think one of the problems is that um, the concern or the frame is in terms of of simply a right to bear arms or a lack of such a right to bear arms, right? So it's all about the Second Amendment. And so for folks who, who either don't want guns, who don't think other people should have guns, it's not that difficult to make an argument that says some, that something like the Second Amendment should mean something else or maybe we should pass a constitutional amendment or we should come up with statutes that in some way um, won't fall afoul of the Second Amendment, um, but will will prevent people from owning guns. Um, what I worry about, it's a, it's, a, you know, it's a point that I make in the article, and it's, I think it's something that, um, you know, in talking to, um, to many folks involved in, um, in criminal practice, it's, it's something you see, is that there are a range of other rights, of other liberties, of other interests that are implicated by these statutes. Um, right. So I think the, you know, maybe the best example is to think about the stop and frisk policy, um, uh, in New York City, where, um, where the NYPD was, um, was effectively stopping, 
um, and frisking large numbers, um, usually of young black men, although kind of a range of a range of people, but but predominantly young black men. Um, and the idea was there had been issues with gun violence, and there was a concern about getting guns off the street. So again, framed simply in terms of you know pro gun, anti gun, this is this is a measure designed to to root out guns, um, but it implicates so many other interests, right? For um, for for generations, um, or at least a couple of generations. Um, of of people in New York, this meant that you know, kind of being being a, a person of color in New York, being someone of a certain race or age or looking a certain way, meant that you were going to be subjected um, to kind of constant surveillance or, or police intrusion. Right? And this and came so in for a, this came in for a huge amount of criticism um, from the center left onward left. Yet, I think people didn't really process that mass stop and frisk by the NYPD was premised on searching for guns, um, even though it turned up a lot more small amounts of marijuana. The the premise and justification was always searching for guns. Yet even with all the criticism of the, the program that ultimately resulted in a federal judge ruling that it was unconstitutional, even then peop- it, the, the mainstream critics of Stop and Frist didn't really seem to grasp how Bloomberg in particular's anti-gun gun control agenda was was expressed most most of all through stop and frisk right no i think that it's a, you know it's a really important point that i think that the, the aspect gets forgotten and you know i think kind of in popular discourse it, it was framed in terms of the war on drugs it was sort of folded into that conversation um and you know i think one of the one of the really important lessons from a lot of this i think not just about guns but about the way kind of as a society um we we use the criminal justice system or, or that kind of the the people the um, the government uses criminal law um is to think about these these situations where um where criticism becomes very common, right? And take the war on drugs, um, take stop and frisk. Um, and I think a danger is to frame it in the in sort of the um, least offensive terms, right? It's to say, you know, the war on drugs is a problem um, because marijuana is not really that bad, so we should decriminalize marijuana. Now, regardless of your feelings on marijuana or whether it should be decriminalized, um, the show is decidedly sort of pro pro marijuana, just as a caveat. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so 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 we're in marijuana friendly territory here, but um, but right, like it's you know it's a it's sort of an ahistorical claim to make the war on drugs simply about marijuana mm-hmm. and a and a critique of the war on drugs that isn't able to reckon with um with crack with I mean with heroin and again this is I think a huge issue as we now talk about the the regulation and the criminal regulation of opioids yes. right is the an opiate um. Is, is the idea that the minute we start talking about something that people actually do perceive as scary, as risky, as dangerous, a lot of these critiques start to evaporate. Um, and that's a problem if those critiques are really serious, right? If we really are concerned about the number of people being put onto prison, if we're really concerned about intrusive policing, if we're really concerned about um, about racial racial disparities, um, those need to be concerns when we talk about, about scary stuff as well, not just once we, not just when we sort of defanged, um, the social problem, right? Not just when we're talking about low, you know, kind of, um, small possession, small amount possession of marijuana. Yeah. There's this, uh, I, I, I think one thing you're hitting on by pointing out the reluctance to apply the straightforward critique of the war on drugs to the war on guns. Um, there are all these other 
problems that, or, or kind of liberal hesitancies that sort of echoes. It's the failure to apply the critique of the war on marijuana to the broader war on drugs, which really must entail an evaluation and criticism of the entire prohibitionist regime from the get-go. And if we're going to deal with mass incarceration, um, we have to move past this idea that prisons are just full of people who were unlucky enough or um, to get locked up for possessing small amounts of marijuana. I mean, frankly, that's just not who's in prison and why we have mass incarceration. We have to think of these broader regimes that uh, criminalize so many, such broad swaths of American life and that impose such severe sentences. Right. And, you know, I, I think it's such an important point. And I know, um, I guess James Foreman, who I believe has been, has been a guest on, on your show, you know, has written this really powerful, has written this really powerful book, um, Locking Up Our Own. And one of the, one of kind of his critical interventions is he looks at, um, at what happened, um, in, in Washington, D.C., in a majority, um, in a majority black city that actually had kind of, um, it wasn't just a story of sort of some, uh, of kind of the uh, a more conservative white tough on crime population um, imposing its will, um, it was really the reality of of, of people trying to grapple um, with you know and again in that context with heroin addiction with um, with crime with a lot of things that um, that that are more difficult and so I think you know to me it's one of the it was one of the things that I was really drawn to um, this, this question of, of guns in terms of um, is the fact that if we're really serious about those critiques and if we want to do something about the system, um, it does us no good to pretend that um, that those problems aren't out there. Um, which is why I think it is important to have these conversations, you know, in the wake um, in the wake of the shootings uh, in Las Vegas, in the you know, in the wake of these these um, these really horrible events that. Um, you know, there's always the conversation about, you know, can they be politicized or not politicized? And, you know, of course, this is when we, we should have these conversations. I think the, the real, the really important point, though, and the real, the thing that we, we need to grapple with in all of this is sort of what are, what are the trade-offs? And it's not just a question of doing something or doing nothing. It's, you know, what is that something? Um, and it's something that, you know, Foreman and others have recounted. We look back, um, kind of at a number of, of crime spikes um, at a number of moments where there was a lot of attention paid to um, to drug addiction and other things is that uh, you know too often that do something response was um, was carceral. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, tell Congress, don't gut our gun laws. By now, you've probably seen the Onion headline from years ago that gets republished and shared widely every time there's a mass shooting in America. No way to prevent this, says only nation where this regularly happens. 
And that about sums it up. We have 42% of the world's civilian-owned guns, yet Americans make up just 4.4% of the global population. And we didn't need statistics to tell us this, but since they did all the work anyway, it turns out literally all the evidence shows that places with more guns have more homicides. And if statistics didn't matter before 2017, well, why should they matter now? Every time another mass shooting happens, we get to relive the pathetic excuse for a public gun control debate in America. Some people are asking questions like, isn't our right to not get shot while living our normal lives more important than our right to easily access guns? Meanwhile, the other side is throwing toys from the pram, stocking up on ammo, and screaming obscenities in defense of the Second Amendment. So, you know, it's going about as well as every other political conversation right now. But right before a middle-aged white guy caused the deadliest mass shooting in American history in Las Vegas, two new pieces of legislation deregulating guns were already working their way through Congress. Republicans and the NRA were hoping to push them through without a lot of hoopla. The first measure is buried inside another laughably named bipartisan legislative package called the Sportsman Heritage and Recreational Enhancement Act, or the SHARE Act. You see, those good old Republicans care. They care about your hearing. Well, not your hearing, uh, obviously, but sportsmen's hearing. And they would just like to protect those sportsmen's auditory senses by making it easier for everyone to buy and use silencers on their firearms. Maybe Hollywood is to blame for the image problem, but silencers don't seem like the sort of thing that non-murderous assassins need. What sportsmen need is earplugs. As every town for gun safety points out, quote, the distinctive noise that a gun makes is one of its most important safety features. When people hear a gunshot, they know to run, hide, protect themselves, or notify law enforcement, unquote. Earlier this year, Congress also introduced a bill they're calling, quote, Concealed Carry Reciprocity. If passed, this bill would force all 50 states to recognize the concealed carry laws of other states, no matter how weak their standards. This bill is backwards in two ways. First, someone from a state with weaker permit restrictions would be able to legally carry a concealed weapon around in a state with more robust permit restrictions. But also, states don't have to give out permits just to their own residents. So, under this law, everyone, whether underage or with a criminal conviction, would likely be able to obtain concealed carry permits from the state with the lowest permit restrictions without ever setting foot in the state where the permit is issued. In fact, this is already the case among around 32 states, with Utah currently winning this stampede to the bottom, but this new law would open it up nationwide, regardless of your state's laws. So much for states' rights. Of course, after Las Vegas, the NRA began pushing their allies in Congress harder than ever to pass this bill. So once again, pick up your phone and call or get on your stance app Tell your members of Congress and your governors that you oppose lifting restrictions on gun silencers and want the measure removed from the SHARE Act. Tell them that you also oppose the concealed carry reciprocity bill that would completely undercut states with strict permit laws. Maybe throw in that you're sick and tired of politicians who answer to the creeps at the NRA instead of the people. 
Honestly, it is a tough time for the gun control movement, but every town for gun safety is going full steam ahead. And if you haven't already, check out everytown.org, sign up for text action alerts, look for actions and meetings taking place near you, and take part in their Don't Gut Our Gun Laws postcard campaign. The pre-written letter for the postcard can also double as a call script for the issues we've highlighted today. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if protecting the few effective gun laws we have is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about telling Congress not to gut our gun laws via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. What happened in Las Vegas is in many ways a miracle. The police department has done such an incredible job, and we'll be talking about gun laws as time goes by. We live in a sick country. We live in a country where it is legal for someone to purchase 30 assault weapons and unlimited ammunition. We live in a country where it's legal to buy weapons that really only have one purpose— to hunt and kill other human beings. We live in a country where a cabal of high-powered lobbyists, bought-off politicians, and merchants of death profit off of the massacres of other human beings. We live in a country where the gun manufacturers love a mass shooting. And we live in a country where the Second Amendment of the Constitution has been laundered through lobbyists and some Supreme Court justices to mean something that it does not mean. The National Rifle Association, the NRA, whose leadership would be viewed as terrorist enablers and promoters in a sane society, they don't like the first part of the Second Amendment, so much so that they don't even include it on their very public memorializing of their holy Bible of gun addiction. At the NRA's headquarters, their version of the Second Amendment doesn't include the first half of the Second Amendment. The NRA really only wants you to focus on the second half, which says, quote, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The first part of the Second Amendment, which the NRA finds very inconvenient to include on its headquarters, states, quote, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. Was this Las Vegas shooter a member of a well-regulated militia? No. Were any of these murderers who shoot up schools or religious assemblies or workplaces, were they members of a well-regulated militia? No. And regulated. That's an interesting word because no thoughtful person can really argue that guns in the United States are actually regulated in any meaningful way.
In fact, in this country, you can buy dozens of assault weapons. You can store enough guns and ammunition in your house or garage to wage a small war. Why? Because very powerful politicians, businesses, and their gangster-style lobbyists have twisted the meaning of the Second Amendment so intensely that it no longer even matters why it was written or what it actually was intended for. This coalition of the killing fans the flames of fear and promotes the idea that guns keep us safe, that the solution to gun killings is more guns, and they make a shitload of money off of all the death and misery and massacres, and they will make more money off of the Las Vegas massacre. You can murder 20 small, innocent children between the ages of six and seven at Sandy Hook Elementary School, and these horrid villains are unmoved in their belief in the golden calf of assault rifles. If only the teachers had been armed, those kids might be alive today. Now let's check out our stock prices. It's sick. Each time we're faced with a new mass murder with guns, in this case more than 59 killed, more than 500 wounded, we end up in the same place. Let's pray. Let's tweak this law or that law. Let's talk about putting in acoustic sensors to detect gunshots. Let's put armed private security in schools. Let's use the terrorist database, the watch list, to deny gun purchases. Let's have more surveillance. Let's do religious and racial profiling, which is itself absurd given that most mass shooters are white. None of what most politicians and most TV pundits offer up in the aftermath of these killings is going to do anything to solve the real issue. We are a nation filled to the brim with guns, including assault weapons that are actually meant for assaulting people. Not for hunting, not for sport, unless your sport is murdering people. Watch what happens in Congress in the coming days. Empty platitudes, bullshit proposals, we must do something about this, and of course, a lot of prayer. But none of that is going to result in any change to the fact that we live in a sick society that believes guns bring us security. A nation that has been taught by powerful, twisted people that guns are not at all part of the problem. That everything except guns and how easy they are to get is the problem. Mental illness is the problem. Muslims are the problem. Gangbangers in Chicago are the problem. Not having a gun is the problem. And when these mass shootings happen, a majority of the times the shooter is a white man. And we want to know who he was and why he did it and what was his motive, as we should. But compare that to how black victims of police killings are treated in the media. Oh, well, did they do drugs? What were they wearing at the time? Did they have a criminal record? Did they listen to hip-hop music? Where are the fathers? Trayvon Martin, after George Zimmerman killed him, was characterized as a thug, and his hooded sweatshirt was somehow evidence that he was scary or menacing. That's how black victims are portrayed. 12-year-old Tamir Rice was called a thug, with the head of Miami's police union saying after 12-year-old Tamir Rice was killed that if you act like a thug, you'll get treated like a thug. Contrast that with some of the stories we've seen about the Las Vegas shooter not victim, shooter. One headline in the Washington Post said, and this is a quote, that he enjoyed gambling, country music, 
lived quiet life before massacre. Black victim is thug. White shooter is like a down-on-his-luck character from a country western song who just happens to murder 59 people. It's sick, and this is a pattern. What if these shootings that involve white men killing large groups of people, what if they were covered the way that stories involving shooters of other races are, are covered on a daily basis in this country? How about this narrative? White man shoots up largely white crowd at a country western concert. White on white crime. Let's investigate country music and its violent lyrics. What role did all of this play? Where was the shooter's family? Let's find some white people brave enough to speak out on this pandemic of white men conducting mass shootings at an alarming rate. And let's make them speak for their entire race. We all know why the narratives are different. And another thing, we're once again hearing that this is the most deadly mass shooting in U.S. history. It's just not true. In fact, there are several examples of white gunmen killing huge numbers of black people. The 1917 East St. Louis massacre resulted in an estimated 100 black people being shot and lynched. 1873, between 60 and 150 black people were massacred in Colfax, Louisiana. We don't even know the exact numbers of Native Americans killed in mass shootings since the founding of the United States. Hundreds were killed in places like Sand Creek, Clear Lake, and Wounded Knee. And these are just examples of concentrated killings. And Donald Trump, who boasts that he'll be the best friend the NRA could possibly have in the White House, he suddenly found God when he first addressed the Las Vegas shooting. Let's be real. Trump's deepest connection to the Bible is watching Charlton Heston as Moses. But religious Trump, who speaks from the scriptures, was praised for his perfect tone across the media, specifically on CNN. Just what we needed to hear. A big part of our problem on guns is how it's discussed in the media. And presidents who get prayerful are praised instead of held accountable for the role that they play in sustaining this nation's gun addiction, in promoting the gun industry that profits off of the murder of our fellow human beings. When the shooter is an Arab or a Muslim, they are often immediately branded as a terrorist or a terror suspect. The president and other politicians right after Las Vegas called this shooter deranged or insane, or another word that's lost all meaning, evil. And when it's a Muslim shooter, it's perfectly acceptable to talk about what the U.S. response should be. Watchlisting, banning people from coming into the country, the profiling of Muslims, surveillance of mosques. But when white people are killed, don't talk about guns. That's politicizing the killings. That disrespects the victims. Whether it's someone inspired by ISIS murdering his co-workers, or a white man shooting up a school, or a white man gunning down Sikhs because he thought they were Muslims, they all do it with guns. We don't need prayers. We don't need fake unity over the tragedy. We need to look at the common factor in all of these heinous acts of mass murder. Guns. Anything else is just talking about putting a Band-Aid on a gaping, infected, and lethal wound on our society.
We've just heard clips today, starting with Counterspin taking a look at the usual pattern of reporting on mass shootings. Ring of Fire Radio discussed the political logjam around gun control legislation. Ideas from the CBC spoke with a gun lover who dislikes gun nuts. The broadcast broke down the evidence about the efficacy of gun control legislation. The David Pakman Show discussed the problems with the so-called mental health gun databases. The Dig warned us about the trap of carceral gun laws that feed into mass incarceration. Our activism for today is to hold the line against further loosening of existing gun laws. And finally, we just heard Jeremy Scahill on Intercepted unload some of the common sense and righteous anger befitting of our current gun control debate. Thanks especially to volunteer listener and editor Walt A. for his contribution to today's episode. If you're interested in helping the show, like Walt, by being an extra set of ears, helping scan the progressive media sphere, and submitting clips to the show, join the Best of the Left social network to get all the details. Uh, We could definitely use your help, and you can find the link to join the network in the show notes for today's show, either on the device you're using to listen right now or on our website. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing, and normally you would hear some voicemails from listeners today, but we mysteriously have none to play. Uh, We go through these dry spells every once in a while. So if you've been considering calling into the show, now is a great time to do it. Lines are wide open. And I just want to add one thing to today's episode. Longtime listeners will know that I don't do gun control episodes all that often. I And I think that the honest reason for that is that I find them super depressing. It's actually quite difficult for me to do these shows. Yesterday, as I was doing my big, like, research push to, to, you know, bring all this content together, you know, hours and hours of it, scan through it, listen to the, all the themes and the details and the high notes and the low notes, um, as I was preparing for today's, you know, edit, it was taking a toll, honestly, because I find this to be one of the most baffling debates we have in this country that where the arguments coming from the other side, I find to be maybe dumber than most arguments that I don't agree with that come from the other side on most topics, you know, like the, the downsides to our current gun status quo are so concrete and the upsides are so ephemeral and they live almost entirely within the minds of people who just like guns and therefore come up with all kinds of reasons that are either completely fabricated statistics or nonsense talking points or have seeds of truth that they extrapolate into nonsense. And so I honestly, I find it frustrating that the debate is so ridiculous and the other side is winning the debate so handily in our actual laws and statutes in the country. It's it's not that the country, the, the opinion polls of people actually agree with the other side. They don't, but we are, you know, in this position where we are completely immovable on on the subject. So I, I find it genuinely depressing and frustrating to deal with. And, and so I don't know. I, I just thought, <laughs> I don't know. What, what, what can I add to this conversation? And, and I look at my own history and think, 
boy, I, I don't talk about this very often. <laughs> Why is that? And uh, listeners may wonder for themselves, hey, how come Best of Left doesn't uh, touch on this issue more often? It's so important. And and I think like it would be easier to talk about gun control and, and you know related subjects if it was one small part of the show regularly. But the way this show is put together is just different. You know, I, I focus entirely on one topic for multiple days, you know, cramming, you know, it's like cramming for a test, like over and over, just hours and hours and hours on the same topic. And, uh, and boy, I, I just found it draining and noticed that about myself and, and thought I would share. The last little tidbit on this is, uh, you know, because so much of the gun debate re- revolves around the Constitution and arguments about the Constitution. It, what came to mind is one of my favorite quotes from Tom, Thomas Jefferson. It's written in his monument in Washington, D.C., and, and I don't really see it referenced other places very often, but being at his monument in D.C., I saw it, read it on the wall, and took a picture of it. And uh, And I just think that it is fitting for how we think about gun control and the Second Amendment and how we get twisted into this idea like whatever they said 200 years ago is exactly what we have to live by right now. So the quote reads, I am not an advocate for frequent changes in laws and constitutions, but laws and institutions must go hand in hand with the progress of the human mind. As that becomes more developed, more enlightened, as new discoveries are made, new truths discovered, and manners and opinions change with the change of circumstances, institutions must advance also to keep pace with the times. We might as well require a man to wear still the coat which fitted him when a boy as civilized society to remain ever under the regime of their barbarous ancestors. So as I said, if you'd like to call in, leave a message on this topic or any other, now is a great time. The number to dial 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size on patreon.com, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained Stories and forget who it is with